Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me as always is Gabe Gums. And today uh, we have a very special guest. His name is Ed Hudson from Cal State University. He is the CISO. Ed, welcome on. Good afternoon. It's great to be with you guys. Yeah, we really appreciate your time and really excited to uh, do this interview. First of all, for anyone that doesn't know you, go ahead and just open up uh, a little bit about your background, where you came from and how you kind of got to where you are today. Uh, great, fantastic. I, I had, like, I think most CISOs of this particular generation had a very um, shoots and ladders sort of uh, career journey, or as I call it, I think my, my journey was more like Jumanji. I'm just kind of happy to get out alive. Uh, <laughs> I started out, uh, you know, out of high school, I went right into the Marine Corps and was working on helicopters. So I had absolutely nothing to do with technology, but my dad was an engineer, so I always was, you know, a little bit interested. Uh, sometimes despite his, my protestations, my dad would teach me uh, some programming and things like that. And I ended up uh, doing a stint in the White House, actually. I was one of the Marine One crew chiefs back during the Reagan era. Oh, wow. But uh, I had decided that I'd had enough of uh, detailing and polishing uh, helicopters for the White House. So when I got out, I went into law enforcement and I spent uh, about 15 years actually in a couple of different police departments and a DA's office. And that's really where I got into technology. Uh, I was a detective in our child abuse sexual assault unit up in Northern California. And we started wow. seeing computers in crime scenes. And that was back when nobody had them. Nobody really knew anything about them. They were afraid of them. People didn't even know how to turn them on those big beige boxes that, that we're used to seeing. And I was enough of a geeky guy that when they found one of those, they would say, well, call Ed. And I would come out. And I remember when I did my first forensics exam, uh, it was on a, a hard drive that was 1.6 gigabytes. And I couldn't understand why in the world somebody would need 1.6 gigabytes of storage. And I was doing the forensics with Norton Utilities and a stack of floppy disks. And it took me forever. So I went to school and got my degree in information technology and and went to several other classes around technology and security and um, computer forensics and network forensics. And uh, that culminated in uh, being one of the founding members of our Northern California High Tech Crime Task Force this back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I ended up being recruited into the private sector uh, for a company that was going to do that kind of service for corporate America. And they wanted somebody who knew how to talk the badge is what they said at the time. And so I spent about a decade in a couple of different companies uh, doing security assessments and penetration testing and incident response. And then I landed at the Cal State system at one of our campuses, Chico State of Northern California, about 10 years ago and did that uh, for a number of years. And about seven years ago, landed at the, our headquarters for the Cal State University system in Southern California, where I'm now the Chief Information Security Officer. The Cal State System is the largest four-year uh, public university in the country. We have half a million students, 23 campuses, and almost 50,000 employees. So it keeps me 
pretty busy with no end of uh, different challenges every day. Half a million students. So let's put <laughs> in the context real quick. You are responsible for protecting the information of not less than half a million people directly. Yes. Now, I don't get to do that or don't have to do that all by myself. Each of our campuses has their own information security officer and CIO, and I have a small team, and we help set that direction for um, the entirety. But it's a pretty, it's a pretty challenging environment. Yeah. Wow. Can, can we just go back a little bit here? You went over a lot of information there. First of all, when you said you were, you're a Marine and then you became a police officer. So that was in the state of California. And I'm a huge fan of live PD. I don't care if it's fake or real. <laughs> I, I can't get enough of it. So <laughs> that, that's, that's super interesting. So how many years were you actually on the street? So I actually started out in Virginia uh, because when I got oh, okay. out, when, when I was with uh, Marine One, you know, that was in Quantico, Virginia, and I went to work for the local uh, county police there in Prince William County, Virginia. Yeah. So I did that for about three, four years before coming to California, and I did another uh, about four years on the street uh, in Santa Rosa, California uh, as a street cop before getting my detective's badge and, and moving it. What, what, what can you say that like from, from your experience doing that and from being in the Marines, what can you say that's kind of brought that like any kind of success to the position that you're in right now? What, have you seen any kind of transition that's helped um, all that I, experience? Yeah, I, th I think so. And um, you know, the saying once a Marine, always a Marine. But part of the reason for that is I learned some really valuable concepts when I was in the Marine Corps and you may or may not be aware, the Marine Corps has this, what they call the rule of three. And everything in the Marine Corps sort of boils down to three things. It's the most that you can really be effective with. And when you think about it, a corporal might have, you know, three people on a fire team and a sergeant has three fire teams on a squad and three squads with platoon, et cetera. And the reason they, and there's, you know, three Marine divisions with one in reserve. And, and the reason they do that is they boil down, you really can't be effective with anything more than three. Um, and so I've carried that with me my entire life. So there's, you know, things in my life are oriented around three things. There's my job, there's me taking care of me and, and my own personal development, and then my family. And then at work, I might have three major projects at any, you know, one time. And, and it's been a really useful way for me to, to break that down. Um, one of the things that the Marine Corps taught me in terms of leadership is you have three roles. Number one is accomplish your mission, accomplish whatever the task is that you have. Number two is to take care of your people. And number three is to train your people. And what I have found is if you take care of number two and number three, which are your people, then number one's going to take care of itself uh, because you've trained and taken care of the, the team that you're working with. And I, I think the corollary to that also is, is and, and where I've brought that into my workplace in particular, is I have a rule of three when it comes to communication, if I'm getting ready to send you the third email, it's time for me to get off my butt and come walk over to your desk. Although in the time of COVID, now it's maybe it's time to, you know, pick up the phone and give you a call. Uh, and so I, I just found that that works really well. And then from the law enforcement piece, being a detective and just being very detail oriented and having to look for things with a lot of specificity, those two things 
translate really well into security and privacy and being attentive to the kinds of things that we're responsible for as security professionals. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. And that <clears throat> thank you for explaining that. I, I guess we'll kind of dive a little bit into talking about the university. So how are universities exactly like a large company um, and how are they different when it comes to security and privacy? Well, this was, this was when I came to higher education, I thought, oh, I've done you know, consulting in higher ed. I get how this works and you know, servers are servers are servers. And so there's a, you know, a lot of that that does translate really well, but it's a very different environment in terms of on one side, on the educational side, you have a very wide open environment for teaching and learning and research. And that's how innovation happens, not by throttling it down and styming it. And uh, so you have to have a certain part of the environment that's very open. And we let people sometimes even encourage students to go to sites that corporate America would be, you know, would, would block off and say, no, you can't, you know, we don't, we're not going to do that. And those can be, you know, gambling or pornography or, you know, really challenging political sites or something like that, because that's, that's the nature of our, our job. And then on the other side of the university, sometimes literally on the other side of the campus, you have all of the business aspects and we have, we're covered by banking regulation. We're covered by, you know, PCI, DSS, uh, Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, uh, red flags for fraud. And um, then we have FERPA, which is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act that, that governs student privacy. And, um, and then we have, you know, healthcare centers. And so on a number of our healthcare centers then fall under HIPAA. So you get the full gamut um, in, our, in our higher ed institutions without then having the same ability to be as prescriptive as you might in corporate America. Uh, because the other thing under in universities are operating under what's called shared governance. So the faculty and the administration jointly run the institution. And so uh, it's not just a matter of going to, you know, a CEO or the CFO and saying, you know, here's what we're going to do and getting them to sign off on it. I then work regularly with academic senate and faculty uh, on what we're doing and how we're doing it. What do they need and how do we support the academic mission? So that's one of the reasons I've stayed in higher ed for such a long time is I get to be involved in everything across the board from procuring servers to innovation in the classroom to helping our healthcare center directors and doctors safeguard patient and student rights, uh, privacy rights. So it, it's a very complex uh, environment that I, I frankly didn't realize when I first got into higher ed. And then wrapped around all of that is our product that we turn out, our widget, if you will, is educated people, which is incredibly rewarding to be a part of. Um, I don't miss not having that revenue number to hit every quarter, but I do enjoy going to graduation every spring, or as I call it, product rollout, um, and going and seeing, uh, even virtually right now, um, you know, the, the, the piece that we've had in that. I guess since we're on the topic, but what do you feel the difference is between data privacy and data security? Well, we run into, uh, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. And I, I get asked that a lot and there's, you know, generally falls into two things. To me, the security is about how you protect the data, uh, the security of the steps and, and 
and technologies, you know, the confidentiality, integrity, availability, the triad that we're all familiar with. Uh, and then, the, and those are all the tools and, and efforts that you put around securing it and protecting it and safeguarding it. And then the privacy really for me is how you use it, how you, what you do with it once you have it, how long do you retain it, who has access to it, which is a whole different set. Uh, it's, it's comparable and compatible, but it's really a whole different way of looking things. And then you have the various regulations that, that govern both sides of that. So silly question for you, or a serious question, depending on what, uh, how you take it. But if you only had $100, to spend on security and privacy, how would you do it? <laughs> I laugh when you say a hundred dollars. I was like, "Wow, <laughs> can we can we buy anything for a hundred dollars anymore?" Um, Not really. But I would tell you when I think about that, I, I think posters, break room posters, posters in the buildings, um, efforts that I could, because really the thing that we find is it's the, it's the user. We can, we can put things in place on our technology, but it's really educating and raising the awareness of the user and really good. Uh, a, a friend of mine, he's the CISO at Princeton, Dave Sherry. And, and I love it because we talk about end users are the weakest link. And I love that perspective that he has is that that takes out of the picture of the importance that our users have. They're not the weakest link. They're part of our guardian of privacy and security. And so anything that you can do to help raise their awareness and their education, I think $100 would be $100 well spent because 500 people might see that poster that you just spent 20 bucks on and they'll see it again and again every time they come in. Um, and there's no license renewal, there's no maintenance, there's no upgrades on that. Uh, maybe you have to update the poster every few years so that uh, you know, it stays contemporary. But uh, and, and, and in today's environment, you know, a hundred bucks might be hard to come by too. That's very true. Good answer. What, what does CCPA mean to your university? So CCPA is the California Consumer Privacy Act. And it's, it's interesting because the way that CCPA is written, it doesn't apply specifically to the CSU. We're not a business um, as defined under CCPA, but that doesn't mean that we get to just ignore it. Um, because we do, we have a lot of business partnerships and vendor partnerships and public private partnerships. And so we have to stay abreast of, of regulations like CCPA and make sure we understand all the provisions of it. Because then when we give this really sensitive student data, faculty data, employee data, staff data out to somebody for processing or handling in any way, we have a, a responsibility to make sure that they are in in line with things like CCPA and GDPR and the various regulations that govern that. Um, so it's interesting. There are some parts of the university that do operate as a business, but typically they don't raise, rise to the threshold that CCPA has. But that's part of my effort too, is in working with those auxiliary organizations to see where they are things like bookstores and, and our alumni foundations and things like that that might fall underneath there. So it's still something that we pay a lot of attention to and keep abreast of. In your answer, there's something that jumped out at me that I want to pull the thread on a little bit. Um, data sharing. You, you didn't use that word in particular, but you talked about you know a lot of the public-private partnerships. 
which is very much the backbone, I feel like, of, of this country and of innovation, quite frankly, um, which is why, you know, a university system such as yours is so, so key to, to, to how, we, how we improve all the many things we do uh, at the, the state, local government, business level, you name it, all those things. But the data sharing, it's 2020. It's a census year. It's the year of the COVID. We see a lot of data sharing going on, especially in the university system. University, well, I should say in both the public and private arena, but in the university system in particular, you have a responsibility to share some data with Health and Human Services um, uh, about, uh, you know, possible infections, etc. I, I don't know where the lines are, so I don't want to. I don't understand, but you certainly have to share some of that data. You always have. It's, again, it's a census year, so you have to share some data around students that live live within your campus systems. What are the struggles and challenges and also tips you have around such a, an immense data sharing program? So that's a great question, Gabe. And, you know, we do. We, we share, higher ed in general shares a lot of data. We have, uh, you know, federal and, and state regulations that the CSU is a state, is a constitu- state of California constitutionally formed entity. And so we have to give reporting back to the state. And our, our current governor is very bullish on education, and I'm part of an effort across uh, the California state education system to do longitudinal studies from K-12 to community colleges to the CSU, the UC, private institutions, and bring all that data together and, and see if we can make, you know, if we can identify what makes students successful in K-12. Um, and then the community college system can take that and, and apply, push on the right levers uh, when they get to community college system or when they come to the CSU or what, what can we do to optimize them. Uh, the CSU is, is what we call the jobs engine of California. And our role is to, you know, prepare people and get people into the workforce in California. And so to do that, we share a lot of data with other institutions, with research institutions, with institutional research institutions, uh, with state and, and federal government. And so the trick then becomes, I want to say really a trick, that's not maybe the right term, but the challenge becomes how do you share and what do you share and at the same time safeguard the privacy you know, of those individuals at the appropriate level. There might be things where we are sharing, um, you know, we're sharing anonymized data. And, and that's easier because we say, well, okay, Ed Hudson's data and you strip off Ed's name and, and several other identifying factors. You can say, well, he's a, a senior in this class and, you know, wherever it is that you track you. And, and so, but then the trick becomes which data gets stripped off to make sure it's anonymized. Because if I'm one of 10 people in a class and you only strip off my name, it still might be very easy to figure out which one of those students was Ed Hudson. Um, and we run into this when you run into things like race, ethnicity, gender, gender orientation, gender preference, things like that. And if you have a small population group, it becomes even more challenging because you, you could strip off so much data that then it's not useful. So this is sort of our privacy challenge. And then the other piece of that is, is that when we look at, we have in the CSU uh, what we call Grad Initiative 2025. And several years ago, our chancellor, uh, Tim White, challenged us to double the four-year graduation rate by 2025. So we wanted to double how many students graduate in four years. 
A lot of students take five, six years. Um, but if we can move students through more quickly, that means they have less student debt. They're into the workforce more quickly. So we need to be more efficient. We need to figure out what works, what doesn't. And as we gather data on all of those constituent groups, all of those demographics, and as I said before, race, ethnicity, gender, gender orientation, where they come from in the state, where they went to school, uh, even wage outcomes after they graduate. If we can say, wow, when, when Ed Hudson graduated and went to teach um, high school in Northern California, this was the wage that he was making. So we get data from the State Department of Education to match to to say, wow, okay, where, what was really good about the program that Ed Hudson went to, that he made that great wage doing whatever it is that he did, as opposed to Gabe graduated and Gabe, you know, didn't make as good uh, a salary. So there's a lot of behind the scenes data analysis that, that goes on. And so we're collecting all of that. And that goes to the privacy thing we were talking about is knowing, okay, we've collected all of this data about, you know, around Cameron and Gabe and Ed and Jane and Betty and, you know, all these things to try and make them more successful. But what happens with it then? And what kind of data do we have? It's, it's a really challenging circumstance. Sounds even more monuments than I thought of it in full context. I forgot about that initiative in particular. I'm not a resident of California, but I do recall reading a piece, an in-depth piece on that initiative in particular. And yeah, there's a lot of data sharing that happens there, um, even more so than than most private institutions. I, I, I think the scope of ours is obviously pretty large. Um, I think we probably still have some of the same challenges as even private institutions. Um, if you disperse financial aid, um, even if you're a you know, private institution or a public institution, uh, you fall under some of the same regulations that we have. And that's reporting back to Department of Education, Health and Human Services. If you're tracking, well, you, all, all higher ed institutions are tracking things like uh, campus sexual misconduct, which falls under Title IX and uh, Office of Civil Rights. So you're still capturing all of that data and reporting back regardless of whether you're a public or private institution. Now, uh, how is privacy a part of your role as a CISO? Because, you know, there's, there's some organizations that do have a chief privacy officer. Not sure if, if universities are, are kind of falling into that or if that just falls into your lap as, as your role continues to evolve. What does that look like in your role and why is it important uh, for CSU? Well, we, it's important to CSU because we take the privacy of you know, fa- student and faculty stuff data really, really seriously. Um, there are some institutions in higher ed that have a chief privacy officer. And, and I suspect that at some point we will get to that as the, you know, they're, they're complementary roles, but they're very distinctly different in some ways. So I, I serve in the capacity of, I am the, the privacy official for the CSU. Um, but as that, environment becomes more and more complex. I think you'll see more and more privacy officers, chief privacy officers, because you need somebody who can be very focused, uh, you know, in that direction. And there's still, I think, a lot of discussion about where that role lives in higher ed. Does it, is it somebody in audit? Is it somebody in legal? Is it somebody, you know, companion to the CISO in IT? Is it, uh, you know, does it report somewhere up through student affairs? And so I, I think those are still questions that the CSU is figuring out how best to, to address because we're such a large organization. 
So right now that, uh, that falls to me. Um, one of the things, so in higher ed, we have an organization um, called Educause. And Educause is, is very much around IT and higher ed in general. And every year they do a big study on the top 10 IT issues for higher education, uh, primarily in, in the U.S. And you can see the importance for the last four or five years, IT strategy has always been number one as a concern reported by CISOs and CIOs um, and administrators, that IT security strategy. So two years ago, privacy was number three. So in the top three were IT security strategy, the student experience, and then privacy. And then this last year here for 2019, it was announced in January, privacy rose to number two. So those two are so inexorably linked for us, the, the security and the privacy. And then that goes to the student experience. So I think it, it, it's a, uh, I suspect it's a, it's a type of maturation of how an organization is, is dealing with that. And that, that comes into play from, you know, the regulations and the, and the requirements that are out there and uh, which get more and more complex all the time. Yeah. And I, I know we talked about this off air and I'm not sure if Gabe was there, but uh, when Gabe and I were at RSA, I mean, you can tell that privacy is, is taking a shift in the industry. A lot of companies identify as a, a, a privacy company now more than ever. I think it shot up from 60 to 100 and something at the, at the event. So that was really neat. And that, that resonates with what you just said too. What initial challenge did Cal State have um, that, uh, that sparked a need for a product like Spirion? Well, you, you know, I kind of go back to basic blocking and tackling, and you can't protect it if you don't know where it is. And if you look at all of the major uh, security frameworks in, in the top um, of the requirements are around inventorying your assets and knowing where your assets are. And obviously personal data is an information asset. Um, so several years ago, we saw a need to mature our uh, approach from what had been largely a manual process to literally by surveying organ, you know, different business units, different colleges, where do you have data? What kind of data do you have? What do you use it for? How do you protect it? And then going back and auditing behind that. And that was just not tenable as we were maturing our approach from a risk assessment and privacy protection. Uh, so about five years ago, uh, Spirion, which was then Identity Finder, uh, competed in and, and prevailed in an RFP that we had. And we started out just trying to figure out, so we were surveying business units, but we didn't know what was on endpoints. And so it started out really as a sensitive data location tool that we could do in an automated manner to find what was out there and, and start having a more systematic and mature approach around where the data is, what kind of data is it, how do we protect it, should it be in that location on an endpoint. And so that was really the initial challenge was just trying to solve, well, where is it? And then we can figure out where is it, what is it, and how do you protect it, how do you safeguard it, who has access to it. Is it adequately prepared, uh, protected? So that was really the, the genesis of what got us involved was 
trying to find a, a more robust means across 23 campuses of figuring out where that data was. And, and can you tell me a, a little bit about the implementation rollout process? How did that go for you guys? So it went really well. We partnered really closely with Spirion Identity Finder at, at the time. And so we're a, uh, we have a, a labor-organized workforce. And so after the, the purchase, we had to sit down with our uh, labor organizations and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're not doing. There's a lot of things in higher ed around uh, intellect, uh, academic freedom, protection of intellectual property. Uh, and so we had to really sit down with those various groups and say, this is what we're doing. This is what we're not doing. Um, this is the purpose behind and, and come up with the, the rules and regulations and, and engagement. And so some uh, groups for a time let the, the end user do their own uh, search and just report back verbally uh, or in writing. Yeah, I've done the search and no, I don't have any data. And then we had some campuses that would run the, the, the dashboard and run automate and, you know, get to that point where they started doing automated scans, started looking at where that data was, who had that data, was it adequately protected? So it was a very, it was actually a really long process, you know, for us to get to that point where, you know, really all of the endpoints. Um, and so now our next step is, as we moved into over the last couple of years, the expansion to, okay, now we've addressed with the endpoints because the endpoints can go missing. That was one of the issues for us is you could leave a laptop, a tablet, you know, in a car, in an Uber, in Lyft, in the backseat of an airplane. And so a lot of that for us was figuring out where that data was because it was more mobile and, and higher risk for being lost. And now we've moved into, you know, expanding that into looking at our file shares and cloud storage and databases and applications. And, and so we're in that process right now of maturing that approach. And how has is, how is Spirion helped the university since that implementation over the years? Well, you know, it's interesting. We had talked um, off the air about, you know, you can't, you can't improve something if you don't measure it. And so one of the things that we were able to do was to go back to leadership and say, look, this is where we're finding the data. And this is, you know, and, and it wasn't, there's sort of two things that happen. One is you find the data and go, wow, that should not be there. Let's figure out a more appropriate place for it. But you also find the data appropriately on an endpoint. And so then you have to have conversations around how do you protect it? And so using Spirion and, and staying on top of that, using uh, our automated, the automated regular run searches, mine just ran the first of this month, as a matter of fact. And um, then we're able to go back and say, well, now we need these other tools or we need to take this other approach or we need to have a policy or a, a, a procedure around how we do things. And so it's allowed us to mature our endpoint protection by saying, look, this person has this much data on their, on their laptop. We really need to be doing whole disk encryption or we really need some sort of application um, whitelisting, application allowing uh, or blocking. Uh, and so it's helped us define that conversation. Uh, over the years as we move, because now we're seeing the same thing with file shares and cloud storage. How are we protecting right. that? How are we protecting that? Yeah. And, you know, what kind of success has that uh, brought on to you guys? Has it helped with compliance audits? 
uh, any quantitative uh, results from that? Yeah, and it, it has because obviously when internal audit comes and says, well, how do you inventory your data? Um, how do you know what's happening? How do you know where it is? We can say we can actually pull out reports and say, this is what we're doing. And um, we're, we've embarked over the last couple of years actually on a big system-wide effort to inventory all data across the CSU, uh, across all 23 campuses in all environments. And, you know, one of the comments when we first started that, somebody said, well, that's going to be really hard. It's like, well, yeah, but we don't, you can't stay away from it just because it's hard. That's, right. I don't want to be sitting on a witness stand somewhere and say, oh, I didn't do it because it was hard. Or when we, if we ever have something, you know, the chance of saying, well, gee, Ed, why didn't you look for this? I said, well, it was hard. Um, that kind of runs antithetical to that whole Marine upbringing that I had. Yeah. So, but, you know, you have a, I think we have a responsibility as students and, and faculty and staff trust us to safeguard this data, I need to be able to go in to my executives and say, this is where it is. This is what we're doing to safeguard it. Um, one of the interesting things, it's a little harder to quantify, but one of the things that has come up is that when we sit down with our insurance carriers and we say, they say, what are the steps that you're taking to safeguard data, protect data, security and privacy? And we can say, this is what we do. Now, you know, I think of, you know, the good driver discount, you know, kind of thing. And they don't necessarily come back and say, you know, wow, we're going to drop your premium by a million dollars. That would be really great. But they do tell us that they take that into account and our rates, our risk are reflected when we get audited by the state and they come in and say, how do you do this? What do you do? And we can say, this is, this is what happens. And then there's just a due diligence piece that, when something happens, because we all know something does at some point, we can say, these are the steps that we take. These are the steps that we took. Did, did something happen? Yes, it happens. But I think we're in a much better place from a risk perspective to say, you know, this is the steps we take to find where our data is, quantify it, not just how much it is, but what kind of data it is. This is healthcare data. This is student data. This is um, institutional research data. This is, you know, so these protections are around this data in this place. And we put different protections around similar data in another place. And I think that that overall, you know, said, it's hard for me to give a, a, a quantitative answer because they don't come back and say, you know, I don't get flow from, uh, from the, the, the insurance company saying, wow, we're going to knock off your premium by $50. But, uh, <laughs> You know, it'd be great because it would be, you know, in this time, you know, one of the challenges that we have is as we are in these, as, as Gabe said, these really the time of COVID, um, privacy in the time of COVID, right? Love in the time of cholera. Um, it, you know, it would be great to be able to go to our executives and say, this is why we need to spend this money. And we have Spirion across the entire CSU. And so that's, you know, something that people notice. And so, um, all the detail that we can give them about why we do what we do around identifying and safeguarding data is, is a positive. They knock 50 bucks off. You'd be up to $150. You could spend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I could buy more posters, right? <laughs> I want to go. I have a hundred oh, more than posters. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We can go back to uh, the uh, innovative part. I think we touched on it off air um, if you want to talk about it, but I, I had one more question on the topic we were on is have you experienced anything surprising 
um, <laughs> in the last years uh, since implementing Spirion? You know, it was really, yes, um, in, in a good way and also a way that was, was, was jarring. When we first rolled uh, Spirion out, and you know, we, you expect that you're going to find sensitive data in certain locations. And you think, wow, you know, the finance people or the HR people, it's where the, the typical locations. And when, I, I'll never forget that we, when we ran our first automated scan and kicked it off um, uh, overnight, and I came in the next morning and pulled up the portal, and at the very top was uh, an endpoint for uh, an individual who worked in part of our research group. And he had 9 million social security numbers. And, and I, I, I was just stunned. And then, of course, you can see the path statement, see exactly where that was on, on, uh, on that endpoint. So I, this, I remember this because it was the end of June. And I, I went and sat down with this young man to talk to him about what he was doing and why. And, and he, he should have that data. I understood why he, he's part of our, our research group. But you could see that it was, there were a couple of things. Number one, it was 9 million social security numbers. And we didn't have the protections back then that we have now around whole disk encryption. And, and so, you know, part of it was, well, why is it on your, your laptop and what happens there? And, and, um, and this was, goes to the poster, you know, raising the awareness. I said, so um, Fourth of July is coming up. And I said, you're going to, you know, stop at the store on the way home, pick up some burgers, some beers hot dogs for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. So you take your laptop home on the weekends. Yeah. Yeah. Of course I do. Cause sometimes I, you know, get in a little extra work and I said, what happens when the window gets bo broken in the car and somebody steals that laptop with 9 million social security numbers on it. And you could just see the color drain out of his face. And so it helped us in, you know, telling that story both to that individual and his boss to say, let's move the data. Let's put it someplace. Let's put different protections around it. Let's make sure you have secure storage. Let's make sure you have whole disk encryption. Um, one of our other surprising findings was like 20 million credit card uh, numbers on somebody else's endpoint. And they were somebody who had charge of going out and auditing, reviewing uh, different campuses. And so we identified, wow, we really need to change the business process around that. And aside to just the protections, it was you know, how long should we be retaining that where it was? And so it's a really been a really valuable tool. It was very surprising to us because that where we found the data was not where we expected it to. Um, and that's happened again and again. Is it ever though? So let me, uh, let me change directions just a little bit because I want to get this in before we wrap. You mentioned one of your favorite things in terms of uh, your, your professional uh, kind of experiences and what you really get out of it. It's turning out product, turning out, students and, and other participating members of, of, uh, of society and so on. Um, and so graduation would have been coming up soon. And so world, the world looks a lot different for them, including again, 2020 being a world where their data is going to be shared in a lot of different ways. I don't know that any of them listen to this uh, show. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but what advice do you have in general for the next generation of, of, individuals entering what I would not just call the workforce, but that next step in their life where they're, they're, they're not becoming full-fledged. Adulting is going to be their full-time job as well now too. Um, but what privacy advice do you have for them? You know, that 
that's an interesting question, Gabe. And, you know, I get asked sometimes by my family about that. And, you know, what do I do to protect myself? And, and, you know, we really counted on for the longest time on organizations and institutions to safeguard our data. And I think that that proverbial ship has sailed in part because our data is in so many more locations now. And we didn't have the threats that we have to that data. Uh, and, and to your privacy of your personal information, we, we didn't see quite the same misuse and malicious bad actors um, there. So I think it's really incumbent upon us as individuals to be good stewards of our own data. And as challenging as it is, you know, read those end user license agreements and see what somebody's going to do with your data and what your rights are and what you can and can't do or they can and can't do with your data. I always encourage people to um, pay good attention to their credit, their identity, putting locks on, putting alerts on bank accounts, um, because we can't count on, it's too big a problem for organizations to solve without our involvement. So you have to be a, a good custodian of your own data out there. And, and you know, I talk to the younger people in my family. And I say, look, I, I, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the crotchety old uncle who's saying, you know, back in my day kind of thing. But you do, you have to, you know, you really have to be aware of where your data is and, and look out for it more yourself now. I really, I, and I, I see that only increasing. I think regulation is going to help a little bit. But if you look at the comparison between the European Union and GDPR, where your privacy is a fundamentally human right, you're in charge of that no matter where your data goes. And in the United States, data privacy laws grew so much more sectorally because you have the banking industry, you have the healthcare industry, you have student rights, you have uh, you know, privacy rights, you have all these different things that came up, the regulations and requirements came up through that vertical industry, as opposed to across the entire gamut, like it, like it is elsewhere. And that genie's out of the bottle. I, I don't see us. We, we have regulation in California and in other states. And whether or not we'll see federal regulation, I don't know, um, that I think will make it better. But, um, you know, it's, it's, gonna, it's a big landscape out there. It really is. So I have a few questions before we wrap things up. First of all, what's your favorite go-to snack? <laughs> You know, if you, you had one choice. If I had one choice <laughs> for the rest of your uh, life, one choice or, for the rest of my. Um, wow, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, you know, it, it's tough you say that because, um, like a, probably ten million other Americans, I've gotten into making bread during the uh, oh, there you <laughs> during go. the during the quarantine time, um, and so now I'm you know, but that necessitates that I have to bake it and knead it and or knead it and bake it and, you know, proof it and, you know, do all of that. Uh, I don't know. I think a bread is a snack. It's kind of become a, a hobby, it's but I would tell you my absolute go-to that I reward myself is Fritos. Fritos? Fritos. I Just yeah. regular Fritos or the uh, spicy barbecue? No, just regular. Don't mess with my Fritos, man. Okay. I'm a purist. I'm a purist. <laughs> spicy barbecue. We got to do the twisties, man. We got to. <laughs> okay. That's a good one though. Um, favorite drink? Adult beverage or uh, whatever you want. Um, I, you know, if I'm a, a, an Arnold Palmer, but I there make it with uh, San Pellegrino lemonade because it's got a little bit of a of a fizz to it. Oh, nice. So, yeah, and okay. 
you know, after hours, you can maybe add a little bit of an adult beverage to that San Pellegrino. And- <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, um, what's the weirdest thing you and your family have done during this COVID-19 pandemic? Um, the bread has to be really <laughs> bad. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure my, my the Amazon Prime, because you can't get flour in the grocery store. So I literally no. had 10, 10 pounds of artisan whole wheat flour delivered from uh, upstate Washington. And I had this weekend, I made two loaves on, I, I, I pre-made it on Friday night, cooked it on Saturday. I have two different sourdough starters going right now. I've named them Wendy and Ryan. Wendy because the wheat, Ryan because he's rye. And <laughs> so I've got two different sourdough starters going. I made biscuits yesterday from the discard. And I just took two loaves of uh, sour, my first uh, pure sourdough out of the oven about 15 minutes before we, we started. So I'll be putting some good Kerrygold butter on that when we wrap up here today. You know, when, when Cam asks weirdest thing, I'm thinking, Brad, that doesn't sound weird. But then you mentioned it, you named them. And here we are. <laughs> I think that was it. I've named my, well, you, they're like pets, right? You feed them every yeah. day. It's true. I think I think my dog is getting jealous. I spend more time yeah. with my sourdough than with my dog. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, that's all right. Fine. It can be weirder. <laughs> definitely be some weirder things. Well, yeah. awesome, Ed. Uh, we really, really appreciate you coming on, and it's been it's been really fun. We hope to have you back if you ever anytime. have the time. Yeah, yeah anytime. So. It's it's I, I enjoy talking to you guys every chance I get, and uh, it's great to see where things are going and um, what challenges. You know, we we talked a little bit before this. Our, our issues around privacy and security have just exploded over the last couple of months. The playground that we're in is so much broader as people are working from home. And I saw today that Google and Facebook are saying their employees, some of them aren't even coming back for the rest of this year. So it's a new, what my boss calls the new abnormal. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be talking uh, again. What was that thing? Is this the same guy that, uh, no, this isn't the same guy. Who was the guy that told you to take advantage of situations like this and turn them into opportunities? Oh, that's a Peter Drucker thing. That's there you um, go. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big Peter Drucker management guy, and and he used to every time you'd have a challenge like this, how well, how can we make this an opportunity? How can we turn right. this into an opportunity for our organization? We're doing that. I will tell you through innovation, not just with security and privacy, but yeah, where for can we other innovate? universities, where 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 can you kind of give some advice on that right now? Look, you know, uh, be okay with it being different. You know that old adage about get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. This has spurred on the speed of, of innovation a lot for us as we look to, you know, students at home, faculty at home, online instruction, uh, virtual delivery of all of that, virtual routing of, you know, things for e-signatures, digital signatures, right. being more efficient as we look at the, the challenges that we're all going to have for budgeting, uh, you know, because we have all these expenses and, and so... It's really something I think that we're looking for. We're, we're really speeding up our innovation at the CSU. It's great to watch. It's great to see the the things. Everybody that are come happening. together and be be uh, yeah. innovative. And yep, it's uh, it's definitely interesting times. But uh, I think we're lucky enough to have video chat and all that kind of stuff. So take advantage of it. Yeah. Anyways, just, thank you. Just secure it. Just make sure you secure. Yeah. Yeah. It. Oh yeah. That. <laughs> yes, thank you, gentlemen. It was really fun. Hey, thanks, guys. Yeah, now, cheers. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy, Please. 
This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter at privacyplspod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.